Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. Our guest today is Andy Craig, staff writer at the Cato Institute and a frequent contributor to libertarianism.org. Today we're talking about a fascinating essay he recently published with us on the causes and dangers of minority rule. Welcome to the show, Andy. Hi, good to be with you. Can you give us a sense of how bad partisan polarization has gotten? Sure. Um, I mean, there's a lot of different ways of measuring it. Um, one that you see a lot is uh, the because it's easy to quantify is uh, in Congress. You'll see a chart that shows how often they vote with each other and how much crossover there is in the middle on votes, and that's famously hollowed out. Um, but I think more than that, there's just a broad sense of how deeply embedded it's become culturally, um, that it didn't used to be as all-consuming as it is now, um, and that it's become kind of um, more central to people's identities in a way that it didn't used to be. Um, and that, you know, religion and, uh, what region you live in and all those sorts of things have been subsumed into, um, you know, red, blue tribalism. It seems sometimes that the, there's like two types of takes on this and then a gamut between, because we all talk about this a lot, especially over the last decade, five years, some people want to say this isn't as bad as it's ever been, or it's been worse pre-Civil War. You know, th There's been a lot of discord in American politics at different times, obviously Civil War being the worst. But even the years after that, it was it was pretty – there's pretty discordant even in the first decade of the of the country of how much the Federalists and anti-Federalists hated each other. So are you more on the side that this is just sort of a pattern of America, including the urban versus rural aspect of that, or you think that this is going in a different and worse direction? I think it's it's not worse today, but it's different today um, in ways that the you know the previous. I mean, obviously, it's true we were a more divided nation when we were shooting at each other on the field of Gettysburg, um, but what has uh, happened? Uh, is that it used to be there was a kind of uh, um, it was it was more there was a mixture and a diversity in American politics from you know different regional angles, different religious uh, groups, and so these things um, formed themselves into two big camps, which usually not, though not entirely aligned with the two major parties, and those and that would often become very heated and contentious, um, but it wasn't. It wasn't this total sorting into t basically two um, very homogenous kinds of identities where rural Republican and urban Democrat is the same thing wherever you go in the country. Um, they vote the same. They care about the same things. They consume the same media. Um, and that's, that is new and different. Um, and that came about partly kind of from the age of mass communications, which had a tendency to nationalize debates. And you saw it first with radio and then television, and now kind of on steroids with the internet. Um, and so I, I think it's, it's certainly important to keep the perspective that we are not uh, on the verge of the Civil War. We are not uh, seeing the kind of uh, large-scale political violence that we have seen in this country at sometimes in the past. Um, and so you don't want to, you don't want to get, you know, too apocalyptic about equating it to those things. 
Um, but there is the, the dynamics that are fueling it and the kind of runaway spiral escalation of it um, are, are things that are new and different and have to be grappled with and, and addressed in different ways than how we handled some of those past divisions. What are some of the reasons that typically get given um, for this this newest wave of increasing polarization? In your essay, you mention a handful that all sound rather grim. I mean, political sectarianism doesn't sound super scary, but two-party doom loop and partisan death spiral, those sound bad. I mean, there's a lot of theories. One that you see that I find unconvincing, and I think most of us at Cato would not be convinced by, is that it's campaign finance. It's money in politics. Um, so, uh, that's one that you see that I don't think is, is terribly convincing because it doesn't make much sense why money in politics would drive polarization. Should, it should, I get why it should drive corruption is the theory. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't make much sense that it would drive polarization. Um, one thing you see, uh, asserted particularly on the left among Democrats is that it's voter, voter suppression, um, that, you know, Republicans are making it harder to vote. Um, etc. And I, I touch in the piece on some of the reasons why that's going on. But at the same time, um, when you look at the actual marginal effect of tinkering with voter ID laws and early voting and that sort of thing, um, it does not make a huge difference. Um, the other really common one you see, and, and as I, I just mentioned, I think it has something more to do with it, um, is change in communications technology, the rise of the internet and social media. Um, which is allowed kind of a, uh, there's no more gatekeepers. It's kind of a disintermediated blob um, that does not have the hierarchy that it used to have. Um, and so that in particular is one of the things that's a subsumed regional differences, um, which used to be uh, kind of the big check on this. America's always had a two-party system. But the reason it, it used to be very loose, big coalition, big um, the two major parties, um, they were united around little more than supporting the same presidential candidate. And you had liberal Northeastern Republicans and conservative Southern Democrats. And um, some of the most liberal senators were elected from places like Idaho and South Dakota. Um, and, you know, Reagan was governor of California. And because of the and the way the density divide has played out and the parties have realigned so almost entirely around rural versus urban with suburban somewhere in the middle um that that's something that it's it's it just becomes all consuming because it applies everywhere um and so that's that's i think that's part of what happened what is happening but um, I mean, yeah, there's no shortage of, like, you know, people say, well, it's war and foreign policy that is, you know, any any issue you could name that somebody cares about. There's somebody out there arguing that because we're getting that that issue wrong, that's what's tearing us apart. Um, and I think you really have to zoom out a little bit further than that. Um, you, you can't you can't harp in on any one policy area. And really see the big picture of what's driving this. Your essay, I mean, it talks about polarization, but but it, the thesis of your essay is a little bit different of like how this is working today. And the title is "Minority Rule is a Threat to Liberty." So, what do you mean by minority rule uh, in this context? 
in American politics, we have a rather unusual situation compared to um, what we would think of as the other major uh, liberal democracies, um, Western Europe, uh, East Asia, um, places like that, in that most, not all, but most of our high offices are elected under an electoral system that is not a uh, 50-50 tipping point between the, the two major parties. Um, because of geography and the way the rules of our elections play out, um, you see this most famously in the Electoral College, and that's the one that gets a lot of attention, where uh, in 2000 and 2016, um, you saw a Republican uh, who you know lost the national popular vote, won, won the Electoral College. And there's a systematic skew there that, um, depending on how you calculate it, it runs something like 46 to 47%. Republican to 53 to 40, uh, 54% Democratic is where the actual tipping point of uh, flipping an election outcome is at. But it's not just the Electoral College. Um, obviously, the Senate, um, kind of by deliberate design, is not uh, democratically representative because there are, there are more smaller, uh, wider, more conservative Republican states. They get more senators. And so uh, you see a similar thing there. But even in the uh, in the places that are supposed to be democratic, popular representative branches, um, the House of Representatives and the state legislatures, um, you you get a very similar, the numbers are actually very similar. In some cases, they're worse. Um, there's states right now where the uh, Republicans can lose the cumulative vote for state legislature by uh, it's pushing 10 points and still hold more seats. Um, and because of that, it, you know, our electoral system is, uh, it produces an equilibrium. Um, and it, that equilibrium is where kind of all the rest of, of the relative size of the two parties and so much of how they think about um, political dynamics and cultural dynamics. And so you end up with a system where the Republicans and the Democrats both still end up in power about half the time because that's where the equilibrium balances. But you you have a, even you you have a smaller uh, Republican side of the co a smaller Republican coalition and a larger Democratic coalition, and that fuels all kinds of um, weird illiberal thought processes on both sides. Um, when they're constant, we're constantly facing this reality that um, you know it's not it doesn't feel like a fair contest, and one side feels like they need these rules in order to preserve themselves and the other side to say, Hey, this is unfair. We got more votes. We didn't win. Um, and so it, it just has a lot of, it has a lot of downstream consequences. Um, the fact that our electoral system has that skewed tipping point. How much of this is a temporary thing though, in the sense that, you know, Democrats are concentrating among the cities and the city's populations are, are growing, you know, people are at, a steady clip leaving small town America and moving to the cities because they are dynamic and economically they're the engines of the country and that's where the jobs are and that's where the culture is happening and so on. Um, younger people tend to skew democratic and they're the ones who are more likely to be kind of moving to these places. And so it does seem like no matter what structural advantages the, the rural party 
might have, there's got to be a floor, right? Like they're not going to win with 30% of the vote. And and so is this something where we're going through a period where they seem the, the rural party, which is in this case the GOP, seems to have a structural advantage, but another five, ten years of both demographic change and shifting population, you know, geographically is going to just mean it, it's going to kind of moot that that advantage. Well, that's one of the things um, I mean both Republicans and Democrats kind of fear or celebrate that possibility that, um, and it's true, you know, we are still urbanizing. Um, people are moving out of rural areas into the cities, but part of the, the point of this piece is that even no matter, you will still always have the relatively more rural 47%. Now where that, where that dividing line is might shift. It might, you know, shift from, you know, towns of 50,000 to towns of 100,000 um, as, as, as these things move. But you will still, I, I, I don't think it's just a passing thing, and it could actually make it worse because one of the things that can happen is that you end up with a larger, you end up with a larger urban population that is then even more underrepresented um, because you get, I mean, yes, you will, you know, every 10 years redistricting comes and there will be a reallocation of seats and, and things will shift and partisan uh, coalitions will shift. But part of the reason the uh, system of single member districts that we use for Congress and most state legislatures um, produces this is because uh, Democrats are inefficiently distributed uh, for such a system. They are packed and cracked. Uh, which is what they call it uh, in redistricting circles. And that's something you do deliberately for gerrymandering, but it's also just inherent. And the way that works is that, you know, you have these 90% blue districts that are urban areas that are just deep, deep, deep blue with very few Republicans in them. And you have uh, these more relatively more rural districts that are, uh, that still have a third to a quarter of voters or Democrats, it's still a minority. They're still safe red seats, but there's more Democrats in those districts than there are vice versa. And so because of that inefficient distribution, um, you, you end up with this system where uh, you get more Republican legislators out of fewer Republican votes. And I think it's, it's potential that, that the accelerating urbanization uh, could just, could just make that worse. Um, and it could also, it also fuels the, the insecurity on the Republican side, the, the, the feeling that we couldn't win elections, that we couldn't wield political power, except for this counter-majoritarian system. Um, and that, you know, we're going to be overwhelmed by the, the masses in the cities. Um, and that, that's a large part of what fuels the insecurity, which fuels a kind of, we've got to use it while we've got it attitude towards political power. So as I alluded to before, if I, I've said at different times that if I were just a pure academic, you know, some historian at some university, I would spend a, a decade writing a history of the United States as a history of urban versus rural conflicts. Uh, it was true at the time of the Constitutional Convention that most they were deeply skeptical of the East Coast elites. And of course, their East Coast was the difference between like Amherst and Boston. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's been a long time issue and they knew about it at the 
framing of the Constitution. And one of the one of the reasons, although the Electoral College is strange and they actually didn't think about it as much as maybe they should have, but there was a thought that it would help give that and the Senate, when you combine it with the Senate, would help give more representation voice to the rural areas, which have concerns that are not just like the same as population. I mean, like large areas of farmland that are the breadbasket of America have concerns that are not just about population. So, I mean, do we really want to go after the Electoral College if it's doing this job to some extent of making sure that presidential candidates don't go to Iowa and, you know, always make that stop in Iowa and endorse, you know, corn. Uh, But we want, you know, the concerns of Iowans um, and the concerns of people who live in LA. But if how much time would a presidential candidate spend in LA if we didn't have LA, New York and the big cities, if we didn't have the Latour College? Well, that's, that's certainly uh, one of the uh, common defenses of the Electoral College. And one of the points I make uh, in this piece is that, um, for one thing, the Electoral College isn't going anywhere. Um, so if we're looking at um, feasible reforms, I don't even really, I don't see much there. But one of the, um, one of, one of the key things to understand is that it's, it's not just the Electoral College. It is also the House, it's also the state legislatures, and so it's it, it may well be reasonable and desirable to have a degree of counterweight there in that system to wait a little bit for some offices in some ways towards that side of the aisle. But when it becomes everything, then you're not getting the you know the Madisonian intent of the House within that scheme, which is supposed to be the popular representative branch based on pure population, because that does still matter. and has to be one of the inputs in the system. Um, so, you know, when we think about the, the frame, as you alluded to, uh, how much they really considered the Electoral College, there's a lot of post hoc rationalization of the Electoral College that was not really anything they consciously intended. Um, and so, you know, when we look at, at what the framers did, they did very, very uh, well, with what they knew at the time, um, and and developing a kind of proto public choice incentive based structure, what we think of a Madisonian checks and balances. Um, but there's a you know there's things they didn't foresee. They did not well understand the nature of parties. They thought they were going to somehow get rid of parties, which we now know is neither possible nor desirable. That any functioning um, democratic system is going to have political parties, and so you have to harness and and you know, build around that. And the other thing, um, and our colleague Gene Healy has written a lot about this is the presidency has just become so all consuming. Um, the entire, uh, political system, our parties, everything revolves around the presidency. And so, you know, something that would matter less if we had a more constrained presidency, if Congress was taking more of the lead, um, you know, as was intended, then the fact that the Electoral College has this little skew in it might not matter as much. It would not be as contentious. It wouldn't be the thing that drives um, where political coalitions form to the degree that it does. And so um, that's when, I, when I'm looking at reform. I, I really think the, the place to start is from the bottom up. Um, the Electoral College is not going anywhere. The Senate is certainly not going anywhere. 
Um, even even the system we use for the house is pretty deeply entrenched. It's it's theoretically changeable in some ways without a constitutional amendment. Um, but I think it really has to go to uh, the state level and and kind of boil up from from below. Um, and that's why I think there's a lot of good stuff happening with possible electoral reforms, uh, more proportional, more multi-party systems, um, things that allow geographic minorities to still be represented, which is a thing our system really lacks. Um, if you are a Republican in the city or if you are a uh, Democrat out in the farmland, um, you basically don't get any elected representatives um, in high office. The one, the one thing and the one interesting exception from a lot of these trends is actually state governors. And you see that in how state governors are less polarized. You see more cross-ticket voting for governors. You see more moderate governors. Uh, you see governor, more governors who win, uh, you know, Democrats in red states and vice versa. Um, so I think that's, but if you're, if you're talking about, you know, legislators, um, which I think is where the primary emphasis on representation is supposed to be. Um, there's, there's a lot lacking there. Something that occurred to me as we've been having this conversation, especially this last bit of it, is as libertarians, we are fans of methodological individualism, treating individuals as individuals as opposed to collectives. But so much of this this very conversation and and these arguments feel like they almost they assume a high degree of collectivism that there is something there is something like unique about an a person from Iowa and they a person from Iowa by nature of being from Iowa is like fundamentally different from a person from Massachusetts and we need to make sure that Iowa which is defined as within this border has its interests represented as opposed to the individuals who may have you know not all Iowans agree and not all Republican Iowans agree on a whole range of things or when we're talking about you know that the the Republican in the deep blue district not having his interests, that's just kind of the nature of elections is like if you lose your you don't get your candidate. And it seems odd to tie that to we need to make sure that like these collectives called the parties are are represented equally or or have have some degree of like proportional representation or that different geographical areas, because really it feels like this should be about individuals and individuals are trying to advance their interests, trying to get what they want and tying it all into this geography seems to confuse things. And it's par part of it is tied into like why I've always found a little bit baffling when libertarians defend, say the, like that we need to give extra weight to the people in like rural states so that their interests are represented because that kind of assumes that there's something in this collective called this state whereas maybe i'm wrong but like the best protection against the interests for like of these smaller states is federalism it's that you can elect whoever you want to the federal government but then they can't you know they can't interfere in they're limited in how they can interfere in the affairs of the given states and then the states can be these engines of democracy or whatever and so it just this whole conversation seems to be assuming collectivism when what we should be assuming is individualism. Does that make any sense at all? Sure. And one of the um, 
one of the things about the American electoral system that is um, different from a lot of other places is our emphasis on geography. Um, we, you know, your house district is geographically defined. Obviously, your state is geographically defined. And that's not necessarily the most natural grouping of common interests that people have. Um, and be, and but because we only allow elections to be conducted through these geographic electoral units, um, it, it forces more um, emphasis on, on geography than might otherwise be the case. Um, so if you look at... Um, you know, for example, uh, proportional representation. Um, one of the things you get there is that uh, you can have a geographic minority, which and still be represented, which is that is something different from kind of winner take all elections. And so you can get um, it produced not just more moderation, but it kind of more of a sense of buy in. Um, and having a seat at the table, which, which matters if you're trying to defend a constitutional system from, you know, collapse from lack of public support, um, and the, and the worst things that could come from that. Um, but it's, you know, speaking about libertarians in particular, um, I think there are, there are very strong reasons to be skeptical of, uh, the premise that, uh, more heavy weighting of rural votes produces smaller government. Um, you know, uh, it was, it's rural voters who want farm subsidies, uh, rural voters who, uh, you know, tend, tend to be more supportive of military spending. Um, it's rural voters who are more socially conservative typically and want to do things like ban gay marriage or more supportive of drug prohibition. Um, and even if you just look narrowly at spending, I don't think there's a very strong case, um, that that this you know that 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 we as libertarians should prefer because it produces better policy outcomes a system that um just straight up weights you know <laughs> white conservative rural voters more um and that is something that that is hard to justify as a normative matter um and so one of the things the system forces uh, you know, setting libertarians aside, it forces Republicans and conservatives to do is to come up with rationalizations for why this minority is more entitled to govern. Um, and that can lead to some very dark places. Um, once you're getting into the business of, of the, you know, the populist poison of these are the true people, this is the real America. Um, and, but it it drives people down that path because otherwise, how do you justify this sort of system? Um, so, but no, I, I agree. There's definitely um, liber libertarians should be a little bit more skeptical about the idea that um, these things produce uh, more libertarian outcomes. And you're absolutely right about federalism is the more important, you know, subsidiarity, local self-rule, local autonomy that protects um, you know, rural minorities, rural political minorities, much more effectively than just, you know, weighting their votes in favor of uh, determining control of a very centralized national system.
aside from the way that libertarians should look at who is voting and what they're voting for, I mean, if you're a good libertarian, you should be allergic to the partisanism that uh, dominates the conversation. Uh, you might have a lot of other biases in your head, but like, hopefully you're not subject to those partisan ones. And a lot of things libertarians say sometimes is, oh, gridlock, you know, gridlock is good. We don't want either party to be dominating. So in a, in a general sense, why should libertarians actually care that much about this, this minority rule thing you're describing? I think it uh, it's worth caring about because it produces some very toxic outcomes that can undermine a lot of things libertarians do care about. You know, we care about individual rights. We care about limited government. We care about the Constitution. Uh, we care about um, having good uh, having good political incentives that don't undermine liberty, that reinforce liberty instead of undermining it. And so, you know, when you have this sort of hyper polarization, um, it it becomes such a a toxic, all consuming thing that you don't get broad buy in to not necessarily you know, radical libertarianism, we're, we're pretty content with the fact that that's a small minority view, but um, what we might call liberalism more broadly or liberal constitutionalism, liberal democracy. Um, and that when you have on the one hand, a party that thinks uh, that has to justify why it should rule without a democratic mandate. And on the other hand, you have a party that says the constitution is awful and rigged against us. Um, you, you can, you can very quickly end up in a place where neither support it and, and all constraint goes out the window. Um, you know, the most extreme example I've, I've been coming back to a lot historically is actually Spain. Um, so in the latter half of the, uh, 19th century, early 20th century, Spain had this thing called turnismo. Um, which was basically there was an official liberal party and an official conservative party. And through informal mechanisms and frankly, rigging elections sometimes, but basically they had a power sharing agreement where they would alternate back and forth. And this seemed to work fine um, until it kind of spiraled out of control. And, you know, you had a, you had the breakdown of liberal democratic norms Things escalated through a few military coups, and by the 1930s, you had fascists and communists slaughtering each other. Um, and that's some, you know, that's a place certainly no American want, or no libertarian would want America to go. Um, so I, I think I think that's why polarization uh, matters and is a concern to liberty and to the degree to which minority rule uh, fuels that and. Uh, accelerates uh, trends towards authoritarianism. I think that's a that's a libertarian concern. I agree that the concern here. You mentioned the the Spanish system. You know what? There's an underlying concern for the functioning of any liberal democracy is this: the viewing the other side as illegitimate and also victories electoral victories is illegitimate, which has been ramping up from both sides for quite a while. Um, I felt like that was a lot of what the campaign finance discussions post Citizens United were kind of verging on that because they were saying, well, you know, the Democrats were saying, well, the Republicans only win because of Citizens United. And now you have Republicans saying that these electoral fraud and it's all, it all can get pretty scary, I think, quicker than most people think can happen. But do you think that that 
sense of illegitimacy that the other side's victory was illegitimate um, is sort of endogenous to this minority rule thing that it like came out of it or it preceded it, it preceded the population shifts that had happened. I, I think it uh, pretty well directly does come from because you have not um, you have seen and there are other broader reasons fueling this kind of the rise of populism. Um, you've seen the rise of far left and far right parties and other major democracies. But you have not seen that degree of illegitimization of um, the other side and of election outcomes. Um you know, if if you look at uh, British politics, which might be the one most Americans are, are <laughs> to the degree Americans know about foreign politics at all, the one they're kind of more familiar with. Um, you know, you don't you don't see this kind of um, just just screaming rage that the other side didn't really win, um, and you know you you. We saw on January 6th, I mean, you know, libertarians are rightly skeptical of, um, you know, majority rule sanctifies everything. All we need is more democracy and, and 50% plus one rule. Um, but at the same time, we need to understand the ways in which electoral democracy channel conflicts that otherwise could and would play out violently. Uh, much more violently than, you know, the violence inherent in the system. Um, and, and, and it's fragile. Um, you know, January 6th really did underscore, I mean, if Trump, I mean, you know, be honest, if Trump had not backed down the way that he did after, you know, he kind of got scared into it and sort of backed down after January 6th, um, if he had urged on, I think we very easily could have seen large scale political violence in the United States. Um, and that's something we've gotten maybe a bit too comfortable in assuming isn't a possibility and then that our system is so stable, our constitution is so secure, it couldn't happen here. Um, but, you know, when you see a breakdown of electoral democracy, it, it goes there very quickly. Um, when people feel that elections are stolen, they will get violent about it. How much of this stolen election narrative is the result of the geographic sorting that we're seeing and and the the media landscape sorting that we're seeing so that you can have someone who lives in a place where they, you know, like, we all live in or around Washington, D.C., and the district has, I think, Biden won in the, in the 90s. Um, like, it is, you could, you could live in D.C. and never meet a Republican, you know, um, and never talk with one. And so you get, like, everybody is is supporting Biden, or you can live in these rural small towns and everybody, and, and that we have... I mean, it's in, it's it's kind of insane that we sort geographically and politically, and that political opinions map to like where you happen to live on this plot of dirt. It, it's like conceptually doesn't make a lot of sense, but that you just kind of it's easy to talk yourself into thinking there was fraud because you don't know anyone who voted for the other guy and you can turn on the TV and hear all these people telling you this. And so is this something 
where this is happening because of the structural things in our in the way our political system is arranged and our electoral system, or is it just that we've kind of sorted ourselves and now we are closed off to anyone who thinks different from us, and so we kind of assume that our side is maybe bigger or more powerful than than it actually is. Yeah, that's that's certainly uh, part of it. Um, I mean, even going back to the seventies, there was a famous quip by uh, I forget what his name was. He re- he wrote for like the New Yorker or the Atlantic or something like that, and he said, "How could Nixon have won? I don't know anybody who voted for him." Um, and that's absolutely the case. And it, it goes, you know, in both directions. Uh, you're, you're right about D.C., but it's absolutely the case. If you live in rural, small town Arkansas, like where I came from, um, you, you might occasionally encounter a Democratic voter, but even they will be conservative Democrats. Um, and so it is very easy to become immersed in this in this narrative where you look you look around and, and, and everybody, you know, in your whole world is on one side of this political divide. Um, so how could it how could it have legitimately played out any differently um, when you see the, the numbers come in? And it turns out you actually did lose. Um, and I think part of that is is that we also have the, the paucity of voices um, that, you know, we don't have the rural liberals and the urban conservatives like we used to. Um, not just in elected office, but in uh, the political media and culture. Um, it, it has become so strongly sorted that you don't see the kind of the countervailing, the, the opposite bucking the trend sort of voices. And those can be key to bridging that gap. And, um, you, you know, it, it's not, I mean, this is, and you see, <laughs> I think there's actually a demand for this. So one of the things you see is that coastal liberals love, love, love to latch on to any time they can find a rural conservative, particularly religious figure or clergyman who uh, will side with them on immigration or abortion or whatever the issue is. And on the flip side, Republicans you know, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> look who their last president was. He was not from rural Iowa. He was the uh, the class trader who, you know, was the billionaire from Queens, um, but who turned on the elites. Or if you look at Tucker Carlson, who is, you know, a uh, silver spooned <laughs> kind of uh, uh, New York elite media figure or J.D. J.D. Vance, who worked for Peter Thiel and all these sorts of things. Um People like to latch on to that as a kind of, you know, own the other side thing. But partly it's because uh, I think people realize it's uh, it's oddly underrepresented and it it upsets this sort of dichotomy narrative. Um, And it would I think it would be healthier if we had more of that. Um, And if we had a had a system that encouraged that sort of um, diversity and and mixing a little bit more. In terms of addressing like possible solutions, especially when it comes to electoral laws themselves, anything that would influence a electorate, everything. I mean, we've been fighting these fights for, I've been involved with many of them at the Supreme court for a decade. And even moving a polling station can cause people just lose their minds because it's now uh 
ten, five blocks further. And so maybe that will affect Democrat votes more than Republican votes or something. Obviously, things like voter ID and gerrymandering makes people go crazy. Um, but they're going crazy in a very they're what they perceive as their immediate short term interest for the next election. I, I feel like that's usually the biggest concern that they have. And this makes it all very difficult. And it makes me honestly pretty pessimistic because it's very hard to write the rules of the game while the game is being played. You can do something before the game starts and say, do we all agree that they should be voter ID in, in almost like a Rawlsian original position? We neither of us know, neither party knows who this will affect negatively or positively, but do we generally agree on this rule? I I see that to be incre- very difficult to do and just increasingly difficult to change any electoral law. So it makes me pessimistic. I don't know I don't know where you come on that. No, it's certainly the case that it is uh very difficult to find things that can get cross party support. Um and you know, I mean, even even relatively little things, you know, like I said, uh, you, tinkering with early voting hours or voter ID rules and that sort of thing, that wouldn't even touch most of the stuff I'm talking about here. But you're right. It's, it just drives people crazy. And certainly um, there's a big role here for the classic libertarian critique, which is that if government wasn't doing so much, we could fight about it less. Um, and that is, you know, certainly a big, important part of it. And also decentralizing so that it's not all at the national level. Um, I do think there are some good prospects for reform that are starting to bubble up. Um, one of them is is ranked choice voting, um, which is probably the one that has has gotten the most traction. Um, it was adopted in Maine and it was adopted in Alaska uh, in a slightly different version, and it's been adopted in a, at the local level in a bunch of places. For listeners who don't know what that is, could you just quickly sketch how that works? Sure. Uh, ranked choice voting is uh, also known as instant runoff. It's when instead of picking one candidate on your ballot and the one with the most votes just wins, you rank them. Um, and then it goes through this process where the uh, last, the lowest performing candidates are eliminated. Their votes are reallocated uh, according to their voters' you know, second preference. And so what you end up with is a system where uh, nobody gets elected until they clear a fifth, the majority threshold uh, through this process, as opposed to what you have now, where you have a three-way race, somebody can win with, you know, 40%, 38%, something like that. Um, and so one of the things it's, it's you know, it encourages um, less negative campaigning because, you have to appeal to be the second choice uh, or the third choice or, you know, as the case may be, of uh, the other candidates in the race. Um, it's a little bit, it's not radically, but it's a little bit more conducive to having multi-party uh, participate, more than two parties participating in an election. It gets rid of the spoiler effect. Um, and so to narrow in just on, on case, uh, one particular example of how this passed or how it was adopted um, in Maine, they had a governor, Paul LePage, who was elected, I think it was under 40%, at least one of the times, uh, but twice in a row, he was elected on very, very short of a majority. And it was because there was a, um, it was an independent or a green, a left-leaning uh, third-party candidate who did very well and was a spoiler. And so then they did, it, you know, it went back and forth through the legislature and the courts and stuff a lot of times, but ultimately what cemented it was uh, being able to do it through the initiative process. 
Um, and that's something in the states that have it. Uh, I think that's where a lot of the, the prospects for adopting um, various reforms is, is going to be through the initiative process, because that by design lets you bypass the incumbent legislators. Um, and there's a lot of things that are um, popular, but are not in the interest of the majority party in a given state. So I think that's the case with a lot of electoral reform. Um, you know, one of the other uh, one of the other ideas is is nonpartisan elections, which is overwhelmingly popular. If you ask people about it, they they love the idea of nonpartisan elections. Um, but only one state right now, Nebraska, for historical reasons, currently has a nonpartisan state legislature. So that's the kind of thing that could be adopted. Um, you could have potentially a state uh, decide to use a more propor- a proportional representation system, which is uh, which is where you know you vote for a party list and they get out the seats get allocated um, according to the total number of votes that each one, um, which is a very common and popular system overseas, but is been pretty foreign to American politics. So that's a potential something that could be done at the state level, potentially bypassing incumbent office holders. Um, so I think, you know, one of the things I mentioned in the article, there's, there's a lot of pros and cons to these, these different reform possibilities. And I, you know, I mean, even all the way up to the, there's the national popular vote interstate compact. Some are trying to to push through, um, for the electoral college, which I'm pretty iffy on constitutionally and merits wise. But I think it's important that there just needs to be experimentation. There, there needs to be, um, you know, American states have a lot of auto- a lot of structural constitutional autonomy to decide how they run their own elections, including their elections for federal office, but particularly for all their state offices. Um, and and to a large degree, it's kind of been a, a blind carbon copy of the federal system of of, but it doesn't have to be. Um, so I, I think we're starting to see. Um, the prospects for state-level reform and experimentation come through, and that if there if there is a way out, if there's a reason to not be so pessimistic, I think that's where it's going to come from. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.